Hi there, Hunter here. Just a few things before we get to this week's pod. Some uh, life events have occurred which meant that it has kept Amy and I away from the microphones and the editing desk and the literature. So we are hoping to get back to a normal routine of podcasting in the next month or so, but it may be a little bit uh, sporadic. It may not be the one-week format that we had been doing previously. The other thing you'll also notice about this pod is that about 35 minutes in, maybe a little bit after that, the sound quality changes drastically. For some reason, our microphones just decided to switch off. And so the rest of the pod, unbeknownst to us, was recorded from the iMac microphone. So it becomes quite echoey, depending on the way you listen to pods. That will be okay, or it might actually be a bit unlistenable. Either way, have a listen and see how you go, and we will rectify it by the next pod. All right, let's get to it. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Welcome to Shrinks Pod. Uh, This is a podcast all about psychology and being a psychologist, and for people who are interested in what it's like being a therapist or just people who are interested in therapy. So today on the show, we are going to be talking about ending therapy or termination is what it's called in the uh, clinical literature. Amy's wanting to do a Arnold Schwarzenegger. I can't do it, but yours is great. (laughs) I'll save it for the outtake at the end of the podcast. So we're going to talk about some of the ins and outs of ending therapy. That might not really sound like that much of an interesting topic but there's quite a lot to it or there can be quite a lot to it. it's probably a better phrase hmm. would you think that that's right yeah and there's i think there's far more thought that goes into it all of the time behind the scenes than what might actually seem like is going on in the room yeah yeah and the other the other thought that i have is that for a lot of clients therapy is sort of ended not on an agreed basis yeah for many clients clients will drop out of therapy Mm -hmm. or come to therapy they might have a break and then decide actually no look i'm going okay and then sort of termination is just over the phone yeah versus sort of a agreed upon ending to therapy Mm. that kind of stuff and sometimes it's the psychologist has to move on or change jobs or whatever and then it's kind of this forced rushed kind of ending yeah, or like a hard ending. So yeah. Like this is it so that the treatment is not done. Yeah. Whereas, but the time has run out. Yeah. So, I mean, so you can get these kind of different different ways that therapy can end. And the thing I always say to my clients is therapists are really good at starting therapy. We're not very good at ending therapy. Mm. Yeah, it's a real skill to be able to end it well. Yeah. What's the first word that comes to mind when you think about, you know, terminating therapy or ending therapy? I'm still stuck on Arnie. <laughs> Not useful, Amy. <laughs> um, I think difficult. Difficult? Yeah. In what kind of way? I think that um, often a whole bunch of stuff can come up as you're nearing the end of therapy and you sort of have to be mindful of how you feel about it, how your client feels about it. You kind of have to be juggling a lot of different factors all at once and I think that we're not trained particularly well in how to end therapy there's lots about how to engage clients how to assess them at the start all that sort of thing but when it comes to the end it's kind of like that you should do it well but there's not a lot of guidance about what that looks like the the first word that comes to my mind is avoidance Mm. and and avoidance on behalf of um, therapists actually sort of avoiding it yeah um, or overcompensating and talking about it too much Mm. and also clients kind of not wanting to talk about it for whatever reason yeah so and then the flip side is if it's done really well, it can be really helpful hmm. to the client and can sort of... I mean, it's, it's like ending a movie properly. Yeah. You know, like or ending a story properly. Yeah, satisfying. Yeah, satisfying and that kind of stuff. The other quick thing I'd say before we jump into talking about some of the research would be that we now live in a world of Medicare psychology. Mm. So, we're, so that's, you can get 10 sessions a year, it yeah. used to be 12 funded by the government Hmm. and for a lot of people they'll do 10 sessions and then that's it yeah so that's another kind of thing where both client and therapist might be going not ready to finish not ready to finish but i'm finishing so that's an interesting dynamic absolutely 
Yeah, neither of you feels comfortable with it. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you can actually make it work yeah. to your advantage because depending on your therapeutic orientation. Hmm. Anyway, so hopefully that kind of gives you a little bit of insight into why Amy and I thought this topic might be interesting. It might not just be, you know, oh, well, I think I'm feeling better, so I might stop. Yeah. Um, although for many people, that's probably actually what it's like. Probably. And then there's a whole chunk of people who it's kind of a process. Yeah. 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 And therapists are often in the dark as to who is who. Yeah. So therapists often can get kind of clingy as well. Mm. Anyway, so we came across a journal, Psychotherapy, that did a special issue on termination. So all the articles in the journal were on this topic, termination. So we thought we'd cover, I think we'd try and cover four. Mm-hmm. So the article that I'm going to talk about, I think, kind of probably gives a gentle-ish introduction into this topic is called The Termination Phase, Therapist's Perspective on the Therapeutic Relationship and Outcome. And this article is by Bartia and Gelso from the University of Maryland in the United States. So they talk about, or they start off talking about saying, you know, well, all forms of psychotherapy have a beginning and an end. And the final or termination phase is thought to be associated with consolidation of treatment gains, strong feelings on part of the therapist and the client, and preparation for the client for continued growth. There seems to be little empirical attention to the ending phase, which I thought was interesting. Mm. And so the aim of this paper was really to examine the therapist's perspective on certain aspects of the therapeutic relationship during the termination phase. And so particularly looking at the working alliance, the real relationship and the transference feelings. So okay. I'll explain what those are in just a sec. They talk about the termination phase as being the last phase of counselling, so during which the therapist and the client consciously or unconsciously work towards bringing the treatment to an end. There's a couple of different conceptualization, couple of different conceptualizations. Amy's nodding at me. A psychodynamic <laughs> perspective would suggest that clients experience end of therapy as a significant loss. So successfully working through the loss of a therapeutic relationship can provide a significant development opportunities mm-hmm. for a client, like if you're a therapist, but like thinking about it that way. But yes, there is this idea that I know this is the, there's a loss there. Yeah. And there is some support for that in the literature. And one of the things they cite is that therapists' own experiences of loss predict therapists' anxiety and depression at mm-hmm. the end of therapy. A perception of client sensitivity to loss predicts therapist anxiety. Okay, so it kind of taps into that relational. Yeah, but this element. is but that, but the thing I thought was interesting is that that's actually therapists. Mm. Like it's not not actually what the the therapist feels the loss, right? In yeah. that research, not the client. Yeah. Client Would you more. agree with that? Uh yeah, definitely. I think mm. that I that I think that that's a hundred percent accurate. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're if you feel connection with a patient, a client, and particularly if it's been a long period of time. Mm. But even with other ones, yeah. where it's a shorter period of time and you feel connection, you feel anxiety about them leaving mm. and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's an interesting experience. And I think that comes into kind of also preparing a client for termination yeah. when you might actually be quite comfortable with keeping them in therapy yeah. for a long period of time. Yeah. Knowing when it's time and helping sort of through that. Yeah. You feel very much like an adult going, you've been coming for a long time. Yeah. We need to wrap this up when internally you might not actually really want to do that. You know, you know that they do well when they come and see you. Mm. So in contrast to this termination as loss model, they talk about termination as transformation. The way they think about this is this phase offers the client new ways to view themselves and the relationship with the therapist by promoting internalizations. And so this has some support too. So in this study, they looked at ratings of the termination phase as well as ratings of overall treatment outcome as the dependent variables. And so they looked at three factors of relationship as independent variables. So the working alliance, which is, you go back to pod two, but that's the agreement on tasks and goals of therapy and the working bond between therapists and client as key components. Mm-hmm. And then they, interestingly, they talked about what as the quote unquote real relationship, which is, what they defined or is defined in the paper, the personal bond, so the extent to which the therapist and the client are genuine with each, with one another and perceive each other realistically. Hmm. And I'd not heard of that in literature before. No. 
um, and transference. So this is conceptualized as reflecting clients' past relationship patterns as they play out in the therapeutic relationship. There's lots written on transference. Yeah. Do they include counter-transference in that as well or are they focused on the... No, the, in this paper it's just transference. Okay. So, But it's the therapist's perception of transference, which is kind of, okay. which is kind of is, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you're surveying therapists, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's about the only way you could do it unless you go and speak to all the clients. Mm, yeah. And they also looked at perceptions of clients' sensitivity to loss. So whether the therapist thinks that the client is actually highly sensitive to loss okay. or not. So going to the study, it was a online study that emailed out an invitation. Those interested, asked some questions to see if they fit criteria. They wanted therapists who'd worked with a client who's over 18, who'd worked for at least 10 sessions, whether you were able to identify a termination phase with the client and a client which they'd recently ended therapy. So, which is, in, they said recently, quite a, which was within two years. Hmm. They got 233 therapists, 54% were male, and mean years of practicing was 30 years. So, it's a fairly well, experienced. experienced so the standard deviation was 11, so it's kind of hmm. still fairly wide, yeah. but mostly psychodynamic or cognitive behavioral in orientation. What they found, so there was a large correlation between the number of total sessions and the number of sessions included in the termination phase. So the correlation was like 0.7. Okay. So basically what that means is the longer the treatment, the longer the termination phase, which kind of makes, makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting. So they estimate 17% total number of sessions were in the uh, termination phase so before mm. so, you, so you don't have to do maths if you see a therapist for 10 sessions two sessions two, yeah if you see a therapist for 20 sessions it'd be 3.4 mm-hmm. so that's not quite as long as i thought but then maybe it's actually yeah. kind of right yeah i thought that's really probably the most useful stat out of this paper like because I'm always like, when when should I talk about it? Do I talk about it too much, too little? Mm, is only I'm now one, calculating when I... <laughs> is, is, is one session or two sessions of relapse prevention and termination discussion enough? Yeah. You know, it always seems to be... I think it depends on the client and the issues that you've been talking about. Yeah, but just even just as a benchmark of number yeah. of sessions. Because I once picked up a book and it had... It was, it was just on termination. Yeah. It said... Halfway through therapy, you should start talking about termination. Right. So, which would be not quite. Which and then there are some people, I'm thinking, doing stuff particularly around sort of personality disorder stuff and whatever, who say that termination stuff should start right from the beginning. Yes. Yeah. So it's maybe it's about your theoretical orientation plus the client's issues. Yeah. So this was a pan theoretical. Yeah. Group. So, yeah. So, so, which is interesting. It's interesting, yeah. So, I mean, you would wonder whether there's a difference between orientations and, and the like. But anyway, mm. the majority of therapy in this sample, like who, the people who talked about termination phase, then ended by mutual agreements of two-thirds or by external factors, which is a quarter. I think that would be a self-selecting sample. They suggest the same. So ratings of termination phase moderately correlated with treatment outcome ratings, about 0.3. So in English, so successful last phase helps with outcome. Mm -hmm. But then I was thinking, well, you know, maybe that could just be spurious, like if successful treatment, then all parts of the treatment would Mm. be successful, including the, the termination phase. Like, so with the hypotheses, they did a whole lot of interesting analyses. I'm just going to talk about the multivariate analyses. I think they're a bit more interesting and a bit more robust. Mm-hmm. They put working alliance, re-relationship and transference into regression and predicted treatment outcome. And they found that therapist ratings of therapeutic alliance in the termination phase predicted overall treatment outcome. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of read this. Well, therapeutic alliance predicts outcome. Yeah. Sort of that mirrors that other finding. Mm. And the other two were not found to be significant, which is interesting because when they examined them individually, transference and relationship were both seem to be related to treatment outcome. Okay. But not in the multivariate analysis. Hmm. So, which is, which I thought was interesting because maybe it's actually just your working bond. Yeah. So they suggest that working alliance, alliance is paramount over a strong personal connection or negative transference in the termination phase. Mm-hmm. So basically, keep working on the 
the alliance during termination. So attending to the tasks and goals of therapy and the working bond. So mm-hmm. like if you're in therapy and you're ending up, you're wrapping up therapy, you want to have good agreement on the tasks and goals yeah. of the therapy. Secondly, all the elements, working alliance, relationship and negative transference during termination phase uniquely predicted the therapist's evaluation of how that phase went. Mm-hmm. And they were surprised by the fact that negative transference was predictive. And they suggested that actually negative transference was not always detrimental to treatment. So what I'm meaning by negative transference is that the client is feeling unhappy yeah. or, or having a negative reaction to the therapist, which actually, you know, that would be conceptualized as um, termination is loss. Mm. And this is suggesting that that actually may present opportunities for valuable therapeutic work. Yeah. Right. Which kind of makes sense in the presence of a strong personal and working relationship during the termination phase. And that would then contribute to better termination. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Which really makes sense. It's kind of a nice little cute finding. Yeah. In terms of termination and client sensitivity loss, therapists perceiving greater sensitivity to loss in clients were more likely to identify stronger positive transference or negative transference during termination. So if you think your client's high and loss, then they're going to have a stronger yep. reaction to you. And so this kind of brings in this termination as loss, termination as transformation models. And client sensitivity loss and transference were unrelated to termination phase, evaluations of the termination phase. Okay. So maybe ignore it. <laughs> interesting. Uh, so yeah, it's interesting. So I mean, kind of work on the therapeutic alliance and don't worry about transference, just work through it. So I, I thought, I mean, I think that's an interesting little introduction into some of the ways in which you can think about ending therapy. Absolutely. Oh. And leads quite nicely into the first article I chose. Yes. Fostering Engagement During Termination, Applying Attachment Theory and Research by Mara Mosh uh, in the same journal. So essentially this paper is a discussion of a way of conceptualizing termination through an attachment lens. Yeah. So it's not a you know, your traditional research paper as such. It's more of a discussion of theory and how that might play out. They talk about how that there are sort of complex responses that happen at the end of therapy for both the client and the therapist and that each person's attachment orientation will influence how they respond to the end of a relationship. So having that sort of separation will trigger an attachment response yeah and so they review what may happen from both a client perspective and a therapist perspective from a client's perspective i'll take you through each of the attachment styles i suppose i should do a quick this is what each one is even though we've talked about attachments so many times go for it yeah well i don't know because some people said they've started listening to the pod and then going back to pod one to start it's like no no just listen to whatever pod you want anyway We'll accommodate both. Yeah. So I'll just do a single sentence. I won't ramble (laughs) for the next 40 minutes about attachment. Pod four, if you want to listen, if you want to have a good discussion about attachment. Yeah. Uh, So there's three attachment styles discussed in this article. Secure. So that's someone who's able to relate to their parent as a secure, stable person who's safe and who's going to be there and sort of use that as a base to go out and explore the world and then know that they can return to them and it'll all be fine. There's anxious. So you see that in people who are quite clingy and worried that the person is going to leave. So quite preoccupied with where their attachment figure is and then avoidant where it sort of comes across as dismissive and not caring where the attachment figure is. It's sort of overly independent almost. Counter-dependent. Yeah. yeah is a bit the way it's, yeah. So, I mean, if you're anxious, anxious attachment, yeah, you're, when you're not with your carer, mm. you're distressed. Yeah. And then when you're with them, you're kind of clingy. Yeah. Yeah, right. Whereas avoidant, you're kind of independent when they're there. Yeah. And you're kind of nonplussed if they're not. Yeah, exactly. So, in terms of clients, they've hypothesized that there are a way, a few ways that this could play out at the end of therapy. So, for those who are securely attached, the author hypothesizes that they would cope better with engagement and with termination. So, they'll tend to sort of approach the end of treatment with appreciation and with feelings of loss, but be able to contain that. And that there's a better 
internal um, resources and social resources to support them during that process so they're more likely to seek help from friends or just sort of up their contact with other people if they're feeling disconnected Mm. from their therapist and that they're able to internalize the relationship so they can continue to feel supported and looked after and understood even when the therapist is gone which Mm. i thought was an interesting well interesting point exactly so they can do the same with therapist for people who are anxious she suggests that there's a far more of the sort of what she calls protest behaviors so things like missing appointments symptoms worsening anger and anxiety towards the therapist so all these things that kind of prolong the therapy well yeah draw or draw the therapist back in exactly in, in the same way that a child protesting a separation would draw the, the parent back in towards yeah. them so like so you can't end therapy because the client's gotten worse and they need to have some more work to be able to yeah. be well enough for you to end therapy yeah and if you're not on your toes as a therapist it can be um difficult to you you can slot back into that groove Mm. very easily and it can sort of perpetuate indefinitely yeah yeah so people with anxious attachment are more likely to have more difficulty self-regulating and that this termination phase is likely to trigger their fight flight responses so quite intense emotional responses Mm. and that then once therapy has finished that they might continue to seek out contact once that relationship is ended yeah right yeah which was kind of would fits with that stalking thing that we talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, difficulty in sort of letting that relationship yeah. go. And you know, you can even this can be triggered not just sort of in the, like the last couple of sessions, but if you flag to somebody, look, I'm going to be going on leave because mm. this is happening in my life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it might be Christmas or it might be someone's having a baby or Yeah getting married or I don't know, whatever it might be, you know, it's something that's going to take you away from work. Mm. It could trigger that. Yeah. It's not necessarily at the end of the therapy. It's sort of any absence. Yeah. 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 Uh, And then for the avoidant group, a feeling of being defensive. And so suppressing any kind of distress that they might feel that the relationship is ending and defending against any longing or kind of wanting of the therapist to still be around yeah so this cool they they might come across as a bit cool yeah exactly so they express less grief initially and as time goes on they sort of just detach move on Mm. um and and dismiss what the therapeutic relationship was yeah and it can be quite if you're a therapist it can be quite disconcerting yeah because you can kind of then doubt but was the therapy helpful yeah did we actually get anywhere if Yep, yeah, that's going on. Yeah, and they're less likely to overtly express that they feel loss at the end of therapy yeah. and are more likely to end treatment early. Yeah. So sort of just cut and run. Yeah. 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 From the therapist's perspective. I mean, so, I mean just yeah. just before we like, go on, like, it can be incredibly difficult. For, mm. like, I mean, we're sort of talking about it in a very dry clinical kind of way, but ending therapy for a client in many, in many cases can be very difficult. Absolutely. And, and uh, we, I mean, we're kind of approaching from a particular way and I might even have a bit of black humor about it. But mm. I mean, I certainly had a patient. She said to me, I was, I, I left because I was leaving a job and moving to a new one. Yeah. I had a full caseload. So I had to transfer everyone mm-hmm. or end it. And she had been transferred from, another therapist to me yeah and then we'd worked together for quite some time mm. you know six or eight months or something maybe even longer and yeah and she just was like i don't want you to transfer me you guys keep leaving yeah and and she was she was upset about it yeah and it really stuck with me yeah i think yeah there are certainly times when it's been more difficult than others and i think for me with younger kids it's been harder because they don't necessarily understand why it is that you won't continue to see them. Yeah, right. I think you're far more explicit in a way about the ending of it because they're used to say, if there's a health professional, then say like a doctor, you get sick again, you yeah. go back to the doctor, the doctor's always there. And then everyone else kind of stays where they're supposed to be. Like, you know, teachers continue to stay at the school, even though they move on to different classes, all of that sort of thing. And so I think you have to have some quite, 
clear discussions, but it's, I think it's quite tricky for, for anyone to sort of deal with the end of a quite a, I mean, it's sort of an odd relationship in a way that you meet someone, you tell them all sorts of personal information about yourself, mm. sort of vulnerable with them, but you, you don't know them out in the world. Mm. And then when you finish divulging all of that stuff and you're starting to feel better, then it ends. It's yeah, sort of, well, I mean, it can be. I, it can I, be I, odd. I would I, like. It's it, not always. No, no, therapy can be quite intimate mm. in that way. Yeah. But then I certainly have had experiences where people have been like, I've done my six sessions and I am out. Of yeah, here. absolutely. And like, this was good. Yeah. But I'm 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 out. Yeah, I've dealt with this issue. And off I remember this particular individual who. I remember we walked out and she walked out of the, out of the building yeah. as fast as possible. Yeah. It was really striking. Mm. And it gave me a whole insight into the therapy relationship that I'd not sort of worked out yeah. up to that point. Interesting. Anyway, so the, from the yeah. therapist, so so from talk about the, how the therapist... The therapist essentially experiences you know, similar kind of things. Absolutely. So if you're securely attached, you're more likely to be less anxious and to experience less depressive symptoms and dysphoria at the end of a therapeutic relationship with a client. She talks a fair bit about therapists who have an anxious attachment style and about how that they might be more active in summarizing the therapy and reviewing goals and sort of worry about abandoning their client. So they might also over-empathize with the loss, so treat it like it's bigger for the client than what it is yeah. or really um, emphasize that side of things rather than that the client's ready to move on. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think, I don't know if it gets into it in this article, but it's interesting to then start to think about, well, how do both attachment styles interact? Yeah, it doesn't, but that was exactly what I was thinking about, that sort of, you know, especially if you've got, say, opposing styles like an anxious, anxious therapist, therapist avoiding client. talk about the fact that it's ending and an avoiding client. Yeah. 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 I'm thinking that that might be those cases where there's more of that ending client, ending treatment early by the avoidant client. Thinking mm. sort of more that it would be overwhelming, yeah. more likely to leave. Mm. Yeah. And then for the avoidant therapist, they're more likely to minimize the importance of the relationship and may miss signs that the client's grieving for the relationship. So that sort of dismissiveness means that they're not perceiving the factors that are linked to their connection and their feeling about the relationship ending and that they might distance themselves from their client's emotional response. So talked about, you know, doing a lot of the concrete kind of planning of the end of of sessions, mm. you know, the the practical elements yeah. rather than focusing on how the client actually feels yeah. about sessions ending. Yeah, it's interesting that we get back to the working alliance. What's mm. the tasks you know what's, yeah. what's the tasks and goals of yeah. therapy? Yeah. And do you have a good working bond? And that seemed to be predictive mm. of treatment outcomes. So reading this literature I started to wonder whether I should have focused more on doing the relapse prevention type stuff. Yeah. And less of talking about the relationship. Mm, yeah. Know, and maybe that was, you know, because in some cases I really wanted to talk about that. Yeah. Perhaps I was finding it difficult rather than... Than the client. Than the client. So yeah. You, you never, like, you spend a lot of time with someone, but you still never really know yeah. what it is that they think and feel. So Yeah, exactly. I found it quite interesting. And I, I like you, I was thinking about all the different ways that it might apply to, to different clients that I've worked with or kind of different times when perhaps... I've ended things in a way that was different to other times. You kind of, and it seems to me to link quite closely that sort of transference, counter-transference kind of stuff about how you sort of play one, play off one another. That seems to especially come out at the at the end. Yeah. And, or if there's a a break or a difficult kind of. And the, and there can be period. a mind game that you. And that's where good supervision mm. is needed to be able to talk about. Okay, I'm ending, particularly when you've. As a therapist, you're ending with someone who you've worked with for a long period of time. Yeah. You know, and there has been legitimate setbacks. Yeah. And in, aside from your own feelings about mm. that individual, there's a clinical estimation yeah. around oh, geez, Risk like, how, and... how are they actually going to go. Like, yeah. And what's interesting is that a client's feelings about this, any situation 
you as a therapist can pick up on mm. and start feeling them too. Yeah. And if you don't have good supervision, you can go, I'm really worried about how this person's going to go yeah. when actually you've probably actually just picked up on... That they're worried. That they're worried. Yeah. And uh, there's a particular case I can that comes straight to mind where I worked out that that was happening. Mm. Like, so we'd agreed upon... We tapered the sessions, we'd agreed upon an end date and I was starting this worry and then I thought, hang on, no, I wonder whether whether this is the case. And yeah. then I thought, hang on, I'm not worried about her. Mm. I'm, I think that this individual can do this. Yeah. And actually, and then that became a goal for therapy was to communicate that no, I was confident. Mm. And actually once I expressed that, the termination phase ran much smoother. Yeah. It was it was really interesting mm. kind of little process to kind of work through with my supervisor and internally do and then kind of test that out in the yeah. therapy room and then it See. off. Hmm. Yeah. So. Interesting. So what's interesting is there's a lot of discussion there around counter-transference, transference, how this relates to the end, all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. and, you know, using supervision and stuff. Whereas traditional cognitive behavioural therapy is is seems to be relatively silent mm. on that. So the paper that I'm going to talk about now kind of kind of gives a I thought it was interesting because it's termination in cognitive behavioral therapy with children, adolescents and parents. Mm-hmm. So and there's unique stuff about working with that group which yeah. I'll go into but being a therapist who works with adults from a CBT framework mm. a lot of the things fit like the basics of CBT yeah. and, and not too different. It's just sort of the execution. Yeah. And you, as you'll see in this paper, it's probably not that discussed, mm. the, the the loss kind of element as yeah. much. It's much more... It's more of a focus on the tasks and the what we're going to accomplish together. Yeah. And what would be interesting is if, like, and as I'll say here, the state of literature is not, I, don't, I would say... You couldn't really say from the literature whether you could tell whether you should just be doing the skill stuff yeah. or whether you need to be doing the the loss, mm. the relationship stuff. Yeah. So that was a bit of a spoiler word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this paper is written, the lead order, lead author is uh, Vidya, or Vidya and colleagues. And so they talk about what well, describes four components in terminating or ending child or adolescent focused CBT. So... First of all is engaging and in, in initiating engaging discussion and termination. Second mm-hmm. is process and termination of treatment and therapeutic relationship. Third is key aspects of the termination process and in the final session. And the fourth is the very end of the final session, so saying goodbye. It's a great article because it's got therapy dialogues mm-hmm. in it. So which is always always interesting to read. Yeah. So, so if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's like there's a bit where the therapist says something and then the client says something yeah. and the therapist says it's something. like a script the script when you're first training as a therapist it's really frustrating when the client does not say what they're supposed to say what they're supposed to say <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then so satisfying so when they do <laughs> i i was kind of the reverse i wanted them to say something that was going to be surprising oh really yeah, yeah i love I was, that maybe i was just much more anxious <laughs> We just need, That's why I like kids. Who we, knows what they're going to come out with? We need to do cognitive challenging. And the book says you're going to say this thing and it's not saying this thing. Yeah, see, I think it's different theoretical orientations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's it. Um, anyway, so uh, I, I digress. So And so for each, what they do is they discuss the theories. They give the example dialogues and then they discuss some of the research. So I'm just going to talk about the theories and the research. I'm, mm-hmm. I won't go through the dialogues. Not so much a research study, but a review of the research and discussion of sorts. They suggest there's limited research in the termination process of child-focused CBT, and it's mostly been on premature termination. Mm-hmm. They sort of highlight child-adolescent work is different to adult work. You know, kids are brought by the parents. They may wish to terminate right at the start of therapy. Parent involvement varies. Yeah. Age CBT plan. So engaging parents is the key. You know, They make decisions regarding continuing therapy, assist with homework, helping kids maintain skills post-treatment. Yeah. So, which is much more different, mm. much more different, much different or just different to <laughs> working with adults. Absolutely. Developmentally and cognitively, 
those things also influence mm-hmm. understanding of termination. Yeah. And they give kind of a good example in that where the dialogue where the kid goes, okay, I'll see you next week. Yeah. And, and they're like, no, no, no. No, actually, mm-hmm. you won't be. Yeah. So number one, initiating an engaging discussion of termination. So cognitive behavioral therapy, the central premise of it is that the client becomes their own therapist. So even from session one, the therapist is kind of preparing the client. So by asking about, well, what are their goals, expectations? What's this progress going to look like? Mm. And you educate about the treatment model that basically that's time limited and focused on specific behavioral changes. Yeah. And that improvement is not linear. You know, there might be setbacks. You learn skills to manage problems independently, that kind of thing. So you're not kind of cured. You just, you are improved and then you've got more skills mm. to deal with the problems that come up. Yeah. It's the idea. The thing about this stuff is that I always worry about, like I get to the end of treatment with somebody and you're kind of like, okay, what skills did we do? I can't remember. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Did we do something? I hope I did. Um, Must have. Yeah, must have. Uh, So when working with kids and adolescents, parents are integral to the termination discussion. So they can help facilitate children's abilities to be their own therapists. Or can work in a whole lot more complications. Or work, yeah, okay, that could be true. (laughs) Yep. Um, Because then you end up with three, a minimum of three parties who may all be feeling... Different attachment styles and and Different stuff, stuff, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, yeah, it's interesting. The only parallel I would have is, like, with partners. Mm. And so that the partner is anxious about the fact that the person might be ending treatment. Yeah. Or may not want them to be coming yep. early on. So, and they're talking about the transfer of control from therapist to parent to mm-hmm. help the child practice skills. So, they emphasize transparency. They suggest using metaphors, stories, analogies to similar experiences. Mm-hmm. You're saying about a teacher, finishing sports season, adolescence. And they use a more Beckian approach. So, you know, the traditional, you know, teachers of your own therapist are expecting change over time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, they talk about this little research about assessing parental expectations needs to be important. Mm-hmm. Some moderate expectation of parents seem will drop out, whereas parents with low or high expectation therapy will stay. I'm wondering about the low expectations. They just keep coming because they don't think anything's. Yeah. So they just keep on waiting. Well, with their low expectations, and then and then actually change comes. Yeah. So if you have like high expectations, you really want it to work it, but moderate, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have this working. Yeah. yeah. So adults who are, because if you've got moderate expectations, it might not be working well enough. Mm. There's some research that says that adults who are given psychoed regarding role induction treatment length significantly less likely to drop out of controls. Yeah. Second. That's uh, often what parents want to know. Yeah. yeah. So uh, second stage, processing the termination of treatment in the relationship. The theory with CBTs is all about reviewing skills, yeah. right? Learned during doing that during termination. What's been helpful? Plan for the future when problems arise. Problems will arise. Encouraging continual practice, anticipating events that could come up. Role plays, using index cards or more modernly cell phones with reminders of what has been useful, mm-hmm. which I think is a really great kind of thing. That thinking about what the therapist might say or do in that situation. Yeah. And actually using a voice recorder and having a therapist actually record a particular statement yeah. can, like, from a schema therapy mm. approach, um, can be quite powerful for yeah. people to then be able to go back and listen to. Mm. So reinforcement, so self-parent and therapist, you know, sort of think about these rewards. Yeah. And highlighting to the individual that was their own skill, not external circumstances, that... Mm-hmm. Resulting change. Yeah. And they talk about some spacing sessions or tapering sessions. So you have a longer gap. You might seem going weekly, you go two weekly, then three weekly, then monthly. Yeah. And that gives more time for problems to come up and gives more confidence for someone to go, yeah, look, I can cope. Mm. Right. And you can do that with adults as well. You know, skills generalization, facing the problems on their own. That kind of stuff. This is such a classic CBT way of talking about it. Therapists can address cognitive distortions about spacing, such as worrying that they that the client has to function perfectly or that they cannot solve problems on their own. So, so like, which is yeah. like it's accurate, like it's yeah. very well worded, but it's such a dry yeah. way of saying, okay, 
you, your role as a therapist is to reassure or to yeah. perhaps not reassure, but to like let, let's examine this. Help the client navigate it. Yeah, help the client navigate it. Yeah. Um, with young kids, the parents might set up practice post therapy, so like if they're socially anxious, get the parents to continue yeah. to do play dates, that kind of stuff. Adolescents, you would identify parental or social supports that have been helpful, they can use in the future. Research wise, therapy for life has only been recently identified as a key process um, in this population. So meta analysis said the, the correlation of 0.14, so for like a small effect. In CBT or in? Uh, in the youth. Hmm. So, and they, they said that it's higher for, pati- for patients under 13 yeah. or with externalising problems. Yeah. They, they demonstrated strong associations between likes and outcome hmm. than internalising problems or older kids. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting because, you know, we were talking about before, like, alliance, 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 mm. therapy, alliance, new relationship. But yeah. then CBT, we've talked about a lot of skills. Yeah. So, yeah. it's quite interesting. Mm. But it's probably not quite as cut and dry. No. So, the parents' reports of alliance was more strongly related to outcomes than youth or therapist reports. It's interesting. Mm. So, it's important yeah. to get the, the parents' perceptions. Which feeds back to however many pods ago about kids with anxiety about the wrong parent in treatment. Pod six. Yeah. yeah. Keeps on coming back to how influential parents are in both the treatment processes but then also improvement and things like that. Exactly. The third section is like key aspects of the termination process during the final session. Mm-hmm. So, again, consolidating games made, plan for the future, celebrate hard work. Talking about reminding sort of initial goals, review progress, positively reinforces achievements. I'm going to say as a therapist, that stuff always feels weird to mm. do and anxiety-provoking because, like, I think for me, I'm like, what if they say I haven't achieved anything and yeah. you can't think of anything or they're like, okay, I did that, but, you know, like, and then you're all sort of stuck in this kind of like, no, but you did really well, like, and that's like, you know. I... I don't know what it is, but I would say the younger the child, yeah. the easier it is to do that. Yeah. And, like, I'm thinking of a couple of instances where like, we've been talking about the end and then sort of said to the kids, so, you know, what are we going to do to, to celebrate the coming to the end? Yeah. And often they'll want to, like, bring in food and have a tea party. And so we'll sit and have... A tea party, often yeah. with, you know, soft toys also having cake and, you know, mm. sometimes a sibling or two, and sit around and have a far more casual chat about what's changed, but because it's already got, like, the cake celebratory mm. aspect to it, whereas I can't imagine with an adult client necessarily going, hey, let's have let's have a tea I party. Could, could you imagine saying to your supervisor, oh, yeah, I've organised it so that my client and I are having a tea party. Yeah. For the last thing. Yeah, it's you just... Would, you would get some interesting looks. Exactly. But in a way, it's quite a nice thing because it's sort of a... It's a communal sharing kind of activity that is sort of for kids that kind of wind down some of the things without the formality that yeah. you might have there, but... Yeah, I mean, I think there's an interesting tension of, like, winding down versus... Let's just try and get this a fraction more treatment in. Yeah. 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 So... Which often, I mean depending on your, your therapeutic perspective. I would I would argue that the I guess I come far more from an attachment perspective, no surprises. But in that sort of thing of giving them an opportunity to experience a relationship ending in a way that's healthy. Yeah. Um, so, and so that being treatment. They talk about this and that which is that sort of vicarious role model thing. Yeah. So um, you know, they sort of emphasize, oh you know, well not all goals completed, but you know, hope they say, but the child knows that they, they can handle stuff, right? Which is like, well, the child hopefully knows that, uh, or the client hopefully knows that. Uh, they talk about using concrete visual evidence of progress on graphs. Mm-hmm. So and I, I reckon that would be a great thing to do with adults mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So hopefully you've given them questionnaires over time and you can actually show benefit. It's common to collaborate with kids on a takeaway product, so which yeah. consolidates skills learned, so this might be writing a commercial or a book or a song about skills learned, and you can view that with others in the final session. Which I, I really like that idea mm. as a you know, as an adult where you don't 
But thinking about that, it's like that actually would be much yeah. better to do with yeah. adults as well. Again, reviews, relapse prevention plan, expecting setbacks, lapse versus relapse. So lapse is like when you get a short-term burst of like the, the anxiety or the low mood or whatever, whereas a relapse, which is like a full-blown like, return yeah. to lower functioning or whatever. And this kind of idea about like what was the most helpful in therapy, although asking clients that is very difficult, mm. like, as in they often find... I often kind of give you very vague responses. And yeah. if you've ever been in therapy, trying to identify what was helpful or trying to even remember what happened in the session, six sessions ago, it can be very difficult. Yeah, it's a tricky question. It's almost too open. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, and this, the framing at the end is an achievement, but you can call a therapist for a booster session, rehearsing, talking to parents about what needs to happen if things go awry, all this kind of stuff that we've been talking about. And it talks about booster sessions. They're doing, if they're doing well, to do a booster session so they can maintain gains. Mm-hmm. Or if they're doing poorly, to troubleshoot. Yeah. Which is kind of like, well, but... Yeah. The determination. But, but more, more sessions. But, <laughs> but what's interesting is, that, is the research that shows that well, there's, there's no research done on the impact of the final session. Mm-hmm. They do know that relapse prevention is effective in adult populations. They do say that booster sessions are effective. So, like in a meta analysis, people who've done CBT with a booster session without children, without adolescents, yeah. do better. It's interesting to kind of frame it that way to end, but then to do a booster session. I'm not sure how you would do it. No. In a meaningful way. But yeah. it can be very good for a therapist to do that. Yeah. Which is like, I'm worried about this person, but we'll do a booster session yeah. in six weeks. Yeah. See how we're going. Very end of the session, so the last bit of this paper, number four. They talk a little written about it. They talk about this mini celebration, what you're doing about rewarding a child with a small gift. Isn't that some success? Thought it was interesting. I'm not sure I did that, but um, it's a tricky one. Yeah, it's a tricky one. Saying goodbye, like, and this relates back to this like part of positive relational history. You know, yeah. Good relationships have beginnings and endings. Yeah. And getting parents and child to share feelings of, of loss and but also positive feelings, and you can validate that as a mm. therapist, but then also model saying, well, you know, I feel conflicted, you know, like, yeah. I'm, I'm going to miss working with you, but I enjoy, but you know, you're doing so well, yeah. that kind of thing. So no research on these final minutes that suggests that kids can learn, you know, it's important because kids can learn how to say goodbye, mm. and it seems to be that successful cases discuss their feelings more often than not. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was, I know there's a fairly lengthy paper to listen to, but... Kind of, Interesting. And and you know, if you're seeing a therapist and your therapist is not doing that stuff and you're wrapping up, you perhaps mm. should actually suggest to them. Yeah. You know. That you want to talk about. That you know, I think it might be good for us to do. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. Don't avoid it. Yeah, you can ask to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shall we take a break? Yes, yeah, that. Yeah. Intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that So this is the bit where we say thanks for listening to the pod and hope you keep listening to it. There's lots of pods now that we've done. So if you just come across this for the first time, please go back and have a listen to anyone that takes your fancy. Uh, If you are interested in the articles that we talked about, we always post links up on our website, twoshrinkspod.com. We also try and put them into the podcast description. You want to contact us do so on twoshrinkspod at gmail.com with any thoughts or suggestions or critiques we're always happy to discuss them and if you've got ideas about possible topics for the show uh, we're always interested in that so please let us know all right back to the show so uh we're back let's just <laughs> clink <laughs> mm. Oh, that's nice. It is nice. Uh, so what are we drinking? Can uh, we promote this? <laughs> we're, we're drinking a single malt that's made in Melbourne. I feel like we should say the, the brand so that they send us. Is that not appropriate? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's appropriate. I'm like, okay, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> <Not that. laughs> okay. And uh, this is Things We Came Across. This is our, our segment at the end where we switch from clinical, clinical, clinical to... Interesting psychology. Makes it sound like the first part wasn't interesting, but 
I can't let you go. So this article is Who's Afraid of Spoilers? Need for Cognition, Need for Affect, and Narrative Selection and Enjoyment. And it's by Judith Rosenbaum and Ben Johnson. And so this is in Psychology of People, Media and Culture, 2016. So do you like to find out ahead of time about stories or not? No, but, but I feel like the problem is with this choice of article, which is brilliant, is that I have argued with people in the book club that I'm in about this very piece of research. Yeah, right. I haven't read the article, but I, I know the finding that you're about to reveal and I, I'm still conflicted about it. <laughs> what else? So, you, so continue. Wow, yeah. Well, see, because, like, so straight up, so, like, uh, this is so relevant. So, like, having a conversation with my brother recently about, I said, oh, Game of Thrones, there's this really, really, there's this really, really, and all I was going to say was a really, really awful bit yeah. relating to grayscale. And he he literally, we're in a park, mm-hmm. put his hands in his ears and walked away. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't even get out. Like, And I wasn't even going to spoil it. And the other thing was, like, I remember it was Harry Potter, mm-hmm. right? So when the last book came out and being in a shopping centre mm-hmm. and there was, like, there was sort of some bookstore... And seeing multiple people yeah. reading the end of the book, mm. like I was, I was, I've never ever seen that yeah. before since. And I actually also remember my right. sister does that. Yeah, right. Hello, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, she Hello, will often. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, she will. She will often read either a random page or the end of, yeah. like the last page, to see whether it's worth. Yeah, so so you don't you don't try and find out. No, yeah, no. And I, I very much like so. Uh, it may come as a surprise to listeners that I'm a Star Wars fan. No, and, and I managed to go into both Rogue One and Force Awakens without seeing anything. Well done. I think in Force Awakens I saw one of the early trailers mm. and then managed to avoid it. Yeah. And with Rogue One, I think. I think I think I saw maybe the same like there was like one trial and then I was like very much studiously avoided it. Uh, I used to work in a cinema and I worked and I watched a lot of trailers and I could work out stuff. Yeah. House introduction was very good. Yeah. Anyway, so the fear of knowing an outcome, the fear of knowing an outcome and interest in narrative development is so great that researchers actually started looking into automatic online spoilers. Did you know that? No. So the question in this paper is, do spoilers really spoil? Yeah. Right? So early research said, yes, they do. You know, a resolution of narrative uncertainty turns suspense into enjoyment. This is the early 80s, 1990s kind of research. Yeah. But then since then, there's been some contradictory findings. So spoil stories can be enjoyed more, at least in mm-hmm. a couple of studies. And, we're, and then there was like, later days where we're actually unspoiled stories, more enjoyable, suspenseful, yada yada. So these authors suggest that maybe actually personality traits may be, uh, may be determining yeah. whether this is the case and actually it, may, it might not actually be a uniform finding across people. Yeah. It may actually depend on what kind of individual you are. Hmm. So they looked at need for cognition and need for affect so, and, and looked at enjoyment and preference for a spoiled or unspoiled story. Yeah. So, need for cognition. I'll just, I'll try and whip through this. It was a very, very well-written um, article and lots and lots of theory. It was great. But I'll just, so, apologies. I'm just going to skim over a lot of it. Yeah. Um, so, tendency, so, need for cognition and tendency for an individual to engage and enjoy thinking. Mm-hmm. So... And they talk about this related concept of process influences and the ease to which a text can be read or interpreted. Yeah. So theoretically, high need for cognition, you experience greater process fluency, and so you would like, you know, analysing stories and information, mm. right? Yeah. And so you would enjoy a narrative, and so you would prefer unspoiled stories. Yeah. would be the theory. Low need for cognition, the reverse. Right? You don't enjoy elaborating you kind of cognitively want to do as little as possible in that regard. And so, you know, narrative conclusions won't work. So small yeah. stories, cool, yeah. actually. And, the, and, and then and there's sort of this theory around like, well, actually, you know what the story's going to be like. So that's, mm-hmm. that makes it easy for you to enjoy it, that kind of thing. Yeah. And there's also some 
stuff about kind of that that we quite like order and yeah. being able to sort of yeah and also like like so I've just started rereading the book mm. and then it's kind of, and, and like you rewatch movies yeah it's the pleasure of rereading for the first time rather than yeah so yeah, it's kind of so it's interesting they also suggest fascinating so they lay out these hypotheses right and then they then then they the second set of hypotheses is actually the reverse of hypothesis one. Okay. And they, and they lay out like a completely plausible sec, second hypothesis for the other way. Mm-hmm. So this suggests that a high degree of cognition may lead to positive effects, spoilers, context is given so you can dedicate more attention to the process. Yeah. Actually, I think it was just argument. But anyway, low need of cognition, don't get the suggested processing benefits and less likely to make connections mm-hmm. and elaborate, blah, blah. They talk about need for affect, which is kind of the effective counterpart to near cognition. So this tendency to seek out or steer clear of of emotional sensations or stimuli, right? Mm -hmm. This is positively correlated with need for cognition. So they were suggesting that need for high affect would be higher. So they postulated that high need for affect people would prefer unsupported sources because you're Mm -hmm. seeking out... The revelation. Yeah. Yeah. You desire... Emotional stimulation. Yeah. Right? So they conducted this study at a historically uh, black university in the mm-hmm. southeastern United States of America. It was 368 students, 95% and 96% were black. Mm-hmm. What they found was that need for cognition influenced story choice. So mm-hmm. a, there was a part of it where you could choose a story, yeah. but need for cognition did not influence their ultimate enjoyment or transportation into the story. Okay. Right? So it was about choosing. Whereas need for affect and also regular reading of fiction mm-hmm. influenced how enjoyable a spoiler or unspoiled story was. Okay. So So it's more about the emotional content yeah. and response than the cognitive. Yeah. So yeah. they basically said low low need for cognition preferred spoiled stories, more comprehension and more in keeping with the preferred level of cognitive processing. But it didn't translate into better enjoyment trans, uh, transplant, as I was saying. But it didn't translate into better enjoyment, as I was saying. Hmm. High need for affect, enjoy unspawned stories more. Yeah, so I mean, I, so with the affect bit, I, I think it's just sort of that kind of wanting, you know, hmm. enjoying that. Yeah, experience of it. So I, I kind of thought that this, this research totally explains um, fights between couples, like, about it. Because, like, you know, you could both be kind of arguing with, like, one prefers the other. Mm. Like, says, oh, you know, I prefer to find out. Yeah. And then and then the, other, the other person is going, well, no, 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 don't find out. You'll enjoy it if you don't. Yeah. Right. And then, and then the other person is going, no, but I enjoy it. You know, but I enjoy it if I do. Yeah. And actually both people are correct. Yeah. Because it actually has no impact on yeah. the thing. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, I'm, I, are you, what would you be? Would you be behind the graphic? Like, yeah. 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 I, I don't that. like finding out the ending before I read something. I'm, go, I'm going in culture movies. Yeah. I don't... I wouldn't go to the point of covering my ears and walking away. But I would tell someone to stop telling me something. Yeah, I've, just, I've, I've, told, I've told someone off. Yeah. In the lead up to the Like, don't even, just, don't even tell me your theory. Yeah. I don't even want to know. Yeah. Particularly for books. Movies I'm far more... Because I feel like... It, a little bit like you, you know, get hints from trailers or even movie posters and stuff like that. And I also feel like I have more of an expectation about what's going to happen in movies that's more concrete. Yeah. It takes more to surprise me in a movie, I guess, than in a book. So I'm after a different kind of surprise. <laughs> so, yeah. See, I, I think, I don't know, see, books that I I don't think I think about books as critically. Mm. I kind of like I just kind of I just sort of read it and I'm not often whereas in movies I'll be I'll be thinking about what's happening and trying to yeah. figure it out yeah I, I don't think I do that quite as much in books interesting yeah mm. what's your own so first things first do you know what a heffalump is a heffalump yeah how long has it been since you've read Winnie the Pooh I'm not sure I've read Winnie the Pooh <gasps> Pod ends. <laughs> Amy Friendship st- ends. <laughs> Amy strangling with my cord. No, I will have to. I'll have to lend you Winnie the Pooh. Okay. I I grew up on a very heavy diet of Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Partly it was, it was because of my nana. 
more famous five and secret seven, I think. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I read that too. But my my nana will still quote Winnie the Pooh like monologues. Yeah. At moments that seem to be entirely unrelated to the content. <laughs> <laughs> the point is, in Winnie the Pooh, in the fifth chapter, there's a page about a heffalump. And the heffalump is never described. Yeah. But it's this thing. So this article is called Conceptualization of the Unknown by six, nine and fourteen year old children in a storytelling context in search of a heffalump. Yeah by Pramling and colleagues in 2003 in childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what they wanted to know was how these children would describe, interpret the heffalump. Yeah, right. And so is, is there much given away? No, so pretty much what happens is that, um, that Piglet hears from Christopher Robin about a heffalump and tells Pooh, and Pooh kind of doesn't want to ask what a heffalump is, but he kind of thinks that perhaps it would be good to catch one. Yeah. And Piglet's quite nervous about the idea of catching one and the practicalities of it, and they kind of work work it through about how they're going to dig a big hole and put a pot of honey in the bottom of it to try and catch heffalump. Yeah. yeah. And then during the night while they're, they've gone off to their houses and waited, Pooh gets a craving for honey. And so he decides to go and climb into the very big hole and help himself to the heffalump's honey. And Piglet then arrives in the morning and gets completely freaked out by Pooh with a pot of honey stuck on his head, thinking that that is a heffalump. Yeah, right. And absolutely loses it, goes to get help, finds out that, in fact, it's Pooh. Yeah. So there's this whole, like, there's a mixture between Pooh's interpretation of being kind of like, oh, this is curious, and Piglet being the very anxious, scared of the heffalump. So you kind of, depending on where you, you sit. You so there's no of, actual information. No information yeah. about what it is, just yeah. that it's that's, a yeah, that's quite a literary, literary technique, which is that you don't, they, when they do it in Star Wars, they talk about a Gundark or something, yeah. and they never explain Never what reveal what it is. Yeah, and it's, yeah. and... And it kind of becomes this thing. Like yeah. Great, like, yeah. Yeah. So the heffalumps never explained. So the idea was that these authors wanted to know what the kids thought. So they read the chapter to children. And for the six and nine-year-olds, they had them draw a picture of a heffalump. Yeah. And then do like a five-minute interview explaining their drawing to the interviewer and being asked some questions about about the heffalump. It just sounds like a rainy day in a childcare centre. Yeah. <laughs> and for the 14-year-olds, they read them the story and then got them to write a sort of mini-essay yeah. about the heffalump. So would you like to know what the children thought of so the So what, what was the... What was, the, was there a hypothesis? It was just a... Let's, let's explore what they might think of yeah, this... Yeah, right. Unknown... Unknown thing. Yep. So they had 40 participants and there were eight different themes that came out. The first one was shapelessness, so that it was able to change form. Yep. It also was chameleon-like, so it was able to change colour. Yep. Uh, there was a theme of absence, so it was doing nothing, it was wandering, it was rare, it was invisible. Sometimes it was sleeping, so it wasn't conscious, it just was. Yep. Yeah. Uh, they were all able to acknowledge that it was a fantasy, so it wasn't it wasn't a real thing. Uh, there was sort of a theme of being strange, so it was an alien thing, a stranger, an outcast, someone who was different, alone, misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And then the teenagers identified that it was a transfer of human fears and anxiety. So wow, was, I wouldn't have got there. Yeah, which. I can remember reading it and feeling like it was about that sort of fear of unknown, of kind yeah. of like um, externalising some kind of fear that you can't put a name to. You know where my mind just went yeah. straight to, which is the never-ending story? Yeah. And that movie's just depression. It's yeah. about depression. Yeah. Yeah. And then my mind goes straight to the bit where they couldn't get the horse out of the mud. <laughs> Look, Will... We'll have more session about that after this. You yeah, only yeah, have to yeah. stay with me for two more points and then <laughs> we can okay. talk about it. Okay? 
Yeah. Like you were able to do that. <laughs> so they also spoke about how that they all needed imagination to be able to describe it. Like they identified that it wasn't actually described. Yeah. And then they had a whole bunch of associations about the name. So there's a little bit about like sort of people theorizing where Heffalump comes from, but sort of a mispronunciation of a child of elephant, for example. So the kids kind of went, it kind of sounds like this, it kind of sounds like it flops around the place. Like a lumpy cow. Yeah, like it kind of just flops. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Flop. Yeah. 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 So that's what they thought the Heffalump was. That's all I've got to say. Did you have any, any, what would you do to well, I, I didn't draw it, but when I read it, I can remember that it changed in my head about what I thought it looked like, yeah. depending on how I was feeling when I read it. Yeah. And so sometimes it would look quite scary, like piglets kind of thing, and it looked quite dark, and then other times it just looked like a misshapen elephant. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was hoping for a definitive answer, but... <laughs> Thanks yes. so much for listening. We are going to terminate this episode. <laughs> so abrupt. <laughs> See you next time. Bye. Well, what's the first word or issue? Arnie. <laughs> dominate. Can you dominate? I- I can't do the accent. <laughs> <laughs>